0: Church, if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 19. We're going to be reading there in just a moment. We are concluding not only the week of prayer, but we're also concluding this particular series of studies that we've been in for the last eight weeks. And only time will tell how the Lord is going to use the praying that has gone on this week There's actually a passage in the book of Revelation that says that God has a a bowl, and I'm sure it's figurative language, but that he has a bowl, and in it he contains all of the prayers of the saints. And it makes very clear that there's never been a prayer uttered by any of his children that he has not heard and kept. And he honors and delights in the prayers of his people. And so in coming days and weeks, I can't even begin to know the hundreds and hundreds of people that have been prayed for in this room this week. We started um, our intercessory area over there by that pillar, we started with one marker board, I think by Thursday evening we had four marker boards filled with names, as people just prayed for those that came to mind and interceded for them. Missionaries that we know personally, many missionaries that we don't know, persecuted Christians that we don't know, were prayed for this week. And only the Lord knows, and only eternity will tell the difference that was made in someone's life because of the prayers of God's people here in Wynn. And I'm thankful. I've never been more delighted to be the pastor of a church. Thank you. In Acts 19, In verse 8, I want to read this passage of Scripture. The Apostle Paul is conducting ministry in Ephesus. Ephesus is the third largest metropolitan area in the Roman Empire. He's already attempted once to go there. If you go back two chapters earlier to chapter 16, it says that Paul was crossing from east to west, and he tried to go into Asia, it says, which was where Ephesus was. And it was very natural for him, very normal for him, to want to go where there were a lot of people. And he would typically start in that city, and as the gospel took root in that city, it would spread out to all the smaller communities. But God didn't let him go on that particular trip, and there was a timing issue, obviously, in the heavens. And so he is finally released to come to Ephesus, and he's conducting ministry there. And so we read in Acts 19, verse 8, and he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, and the way is what Christians were called before we were called Christians, it's called the way, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That was about 300,000 people. Everybody heard the word of the Lord over that period of time, those two years. Verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. The title of this morning's message is Defeating Demons in the Delta. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to this moment, we welcome you here. We've sung your praises, and we have given you thanks for what you did this week, raising up individuals to pray, putting burdens on their heart, guiding and directing in hundreds and hundreds of ways. Father, there's no question in my mind that the individuals who are here this week, their lives have been changed forever by you. Father, as we come to this moment, as we we look into your word and we look at the life of Paul, and what was happening in this moment in his life. Help us to learn at your feet and apply it to what we're experiencing here in the Delta of Arkansas. We pray that your Holy Spirit would come and that you would speak to us and stir up our hearts and open our minds and open our eyes to see reality with both the seen and the unseen that's swirling around us and the great conflict that we're engaged in. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin this morning, um, and I'm going to warn you ahead of time the, the, the front porch is larger than the house. So if you say, Boy, that's a long introduction, I hope he can, he can manage the sermon. Don't worry. Uh, but I want, some, I want to talk about some things before we go too deeply into the message. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm talking about spiritual warfare this morning. And I believe that where you and I live, here in the Delta, and you know the Delta encompasses more than just Arkansas, it includes Mississippi and uh, northeast Louisiana and parts of states to the north. And as we as we live here in the Delta, we live in a place that I believe is particularly susceptible and there's evidence for demonic oppression and attack. When I drove around Arkansas before I came to Wynn for 10 years, there were places where you could just go and drive. And if... If you were at all sensitive spiritually, you could recognize when you were driving in a certain area geographically that seemed spiritually darker than other parts of the state. And so I want to talk for just a moment about the evidence for demonic oppression and attack right where we live. But I want to begin by, by describing who Satan is. And this is not an attempt to describe in depth all that the Bible says about Satan and demons and a spiritual conflict that you and I are engaged in. But I'm using this just as a framework to talk about what we're experiencing here in the Delta. First, I would say that the devil's a liar and a murderer. I say that because Jesus said it. In John 8:44, it says he was a murderer from the beginning. And then later in the same verse, it says, he is a liar and the father of lies. You don't have to dig very deep to understand what that means. It means he hates human life. What he does is not simply aimed at believers. It's aimed at anyone who's a human being, who has a pulse. And so, Satan is a liar and a murderer. He seeks to take human life, to degrade human life, to destroy human life, because Human life is a creation of God and something that's precious to God. Your life is precious to him. And so Satan wants to degrade and destroy your life. He wants to keep you from knowing God, and so there's great deception involved, deceiving of human beings to keep them from knowing God and knowing the truth about who they are and why they desperately need Jesus Christ. And so there's a blindness that the Bible talks about that the enemy brings into every human uh, heart. He's a liar and a murderer. The Bible also says he's a ruler. When Jesus was tempted, the very last temptation involved Satan directly taking Jesus to a place where he could see all the kingdoms of the world. And it says, he led him up and showed him those kingdoms. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Now, dear ones, you've got to understand the extent of Satan's influence in the world that we live in, based on that text. Jesus was being tempted to take a shortcut to establishing the kingdom of God on earth by worshiping Satan who claimed to hold all the kingdoms of the earth. And so instead of going to the cross, the temptation was, fall down and worship me, Satan says, and I will give you the directional control of all the political uh, networks on this planet. I'm not suggesting that everyone who is serving in a political office has a demon. I am saying that the enemy pulls the strings of the governmental structures of this world unless he is resisted unless there's a conflict in john 12 31 jesus said the ruler of this world will be cast out and three times in the gospel of john it refers to satan as the ruler of this world And I've taught it here before, but that word ruler is the Greek word archon, which describes anyone who is the highest authority in a given geographical region. And Jesus says Satan is the archon of this world. Now, how is that manifested in the Delta where we live? Knowing he's a murderer, he's a deceiver, and he's a ruler. What do you expect to find? I believe that there are structural manifestations of an unseen world that crop up, that when you and I become attentive spiritually to the conflict in the world I cannot see, we begin to understand that that conflict in the world that I cannot see dramatically affects the world that I do see. For example, when it comes to crime, if you rank the cities and towns of Arkansas, By those in which you are most likely to experience a crime, personally, out of the top 10 communities, towns, or cities in Arkansas, eight of them are in the Delta, where you're most likely to be a victim of a crime. Poverty. About one quarter of the population in the Delta are living in poverty. One out of four people. But for children that number's even higher. If you're under the age of 18 in Arkansas, in the Arkansas Delta, almost 40% of the children live at a level classified as poverty. In Phillips County, just down the road, over half the children, 54.3% of the children under 18 live in poverty, over half. Death and disease compared with national rates In the Delta region, now I'm not talking just about the Arkansas Delta, but I'm including the Mississippi Delta, the whole Delta region. If you live in a Delta region, compared to national rates, deaths from circulatory diseases are 16% higher here. Deaths from cancer are 12% higher here. Accidental deaths are 39% higher than the national average here. The devil hates children, and the devil hates you and everyone you know. And those are just some of the ways I believe that the unseen ruler of this world manifests his activity among us. He's also an adversary. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, the apostle writes, be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary And that means he's like an opponent in a courtroom. He is against you. He wants to defeat you. He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. He not only wants to defeat you, he wants to dishearten you. He wants to intimidate you like a roaring lion uh, seeking someone to devour, to swallow, to drink down, to render completely ineffective. If you're in a lion's stomach, there's not a whole lot you can do. He's our adversary. How is that manifested in the Delta? This is addressed to Christians now. Last night I checked the statistics for the last five years, and I had to really do some number crunching because it wasn't laid out um, in the source I was using to do this easily. But I looked at the statistics for the last five years since I've been here in the Delta, living here, pastoring here. So since 2013 through 2017 in the Tri-County Association, which is made up of how many counties? Good job. (laughs) So this isn't the whole Delta, this is just our piece of the Delta. And by the way, we're we're one of the more prosperous pieces of the Delta, living even in Cross County. Average worship attendance during the five years that I've been your pastor has dropped 10% in our association. Average Sunday school attendance has dropped 15% in the last five years since I've been your pastor in this association. So worship's dropped 10%, Sunday school attendance dropped 15%. Now, now hold those numbers in your mind, 10 and 15. The highest population losses in Arkansas during that same time frame are found in the Delta. The worst county that, that experienced an out-migration, an outward flow of population in that very worst county that number was 10.3 percent everybody else was less than that so during those same five years people were leaving the delta we know that people there's an exit okay there's an out migration the highest outflow in any one county was 10.3 percent our worship attendance dropped 10 percent our sunday school attendance dropped 15 percent here's my point people are leaving churches faster than they're leaving the delta It should be the other way around. We should be reaching people faster than they're exiting the delta. But they're exiting the delta faster than, and they're exiting churches faster than they're leaving the delta. Satan has strategies that he uses in attacking churches. He's attacked this church. He's attacked most of the churches that you know of. Dr. Arthur Glasser, who once was a dean of the School World Mission at Fuller Seminary, in studying the book of Acts, he talked about four strategies of Satan's attacks. One is to stop evangelistic outreach. You see that when Peter and John are preaching the gospel, they get arrested and the apostles get arrested. To stop evangelistic outreach. He doesn't care if we sit here and worship on Sunday. He has a real problem if we go outside and talk about Jesus. The second strategy he uses, seen in the book of Acts, is to contaminate the spiritual life of the members of the church. You see that in Ananias and Sapphira who wanted to put on a show, who wanted to look spiritual, but they weren't. You see that in Acts chapter 5, to contaminate the spiritual life of members, to divide the fellowship. You see that in Acts 6 where one group is complaining against another group and and you have something that threatens to fracture this, this new baby church in Jerusalem. He wants to divide the church. He wants to stir up political threats and oppression. That's the fourth strategy. When Herod arrests James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, he kills him, cuts his head off. And he got such a favorable reaction from the religious leaders, he arrests Peter and intends to do the same for him, except Peter was delivered. And he was set free. So Satan definitely has a strategy. He certainly has a methodology. And so I need to say to you honestly, as your pastor, there are no demon-free regions in the world right now. There's no place you can go where you're not going to encounter spiritual warfare. I'm not suggesting that this morning as we study the scriptures but you are going to encounter directly or indirectly some form of demonic attack or oppression this is called spiritual warfare but when demonic oppression becomes the normal experience of the christian something is wrong demons have then created a safe place in what should be a sacred place in our hearts Before we moved to Win, when we lived in Conway, Gail was my wife, and I got her permission before I told this story. Where are you, sweetheart? Where is she? She's over there. Okay. I had your permission, right? She's out working in the beds one spring. This time of year, she's trying to get bushes ready, flowers ready, whatever she was working on. And we had, we had a Jay. You know what a Jay bird is? We had a Jay that decided to take over our back patio. And so, one day I went out, and I was looking out the back window in the kitchen, and Gail was on her knees, working in the flower bed, and she had a trash can lid like this, (laughs) with one hand, and she was working on the flower beds with the other. At that point, I didn't know what was happening. I went outside, I said, sweetheart, what are you doing? She said, there's a jaybird out here that's dive bombing me. I went inside got my air pistol that stopped Jaybird bird left he watched from the neighbor's yard by the way a couple of days later I heard what sounded like a rifle shot and um, my next-door neighbor had taken another approach to dealing with the jaybird now right now when you think about spiritual warfare do you kind of see yourself like Gail where that thing just keeps coming It keeps coming, keeps knocking you down, keeps backing, bashing you in the head. Do you identify with her? Because I can say right now that you and I should identify more with the jaybird when it comes to spiritual warfare. We should be harassing the enemy. The enemy should look at you and me and say, Boy, those people are dangerous. I don't want to mess around in their yard because when I mess around in their yard, it hurts and I get in trouble. You'll recall the very first sermon in the series. We talked about when Jesus builds his church and I looked at that that verse in Matthew 16 where Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And as we studied that, what we saw were the gates of hell. We're protecting the enemy and, and we as the church are the ones who go against the gates and the gates will not prevail. We are pulling down the gates. We are destroying the enemy's protection. We are the one inserting and creating havoc and causing pain and hardship for the enemy. So I want to talk about how that happens. How does Jesus change defeated believers into warriors? How does Jesus change defeated believers into warriors? Number one, he allows his people to come to a place of helpless desperation. He allows his people to come to a place of helpless desperation. Listen to verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying... I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now, if you're ever looking for humor in the Scripture, this is one of the great spots. Here are a couple of guys. They're not, they're not even Christians. They're just magicians. And Ephesus was known really as the hub of magical tools and resources and minds and books and literature and, and, and tools. They believed that, that if you could know certain names, certain words and use them you could drive out demons controlling this unseen world that was affecting your world they they knew it they believed it they knew it was there they wanted to control it somehow and so they saw what paul was doing and they said well we'll try that we'll use the name of jesus and it didn't turn out so good did it jesus i know the demon said he uses the word know it means to know intimately means to know by experience. He said, we know about Jesus. He uses a different word for Paul. He said, and Paul we're acquainted with. I've heard of him. I know that name. That's what the demon is saying. But who are you? There's a very important lesson here. These men are operating their own strength and ingenuity at this moment. They're relying on the magical use of names. They were not praying. They were not seeking God. They didn't have even a relationship with God. They were trying to do it all using their ability, and they were leaning on themselves and on their tools and on their resources. You'll remember last summer, those of you who were with us, we studied the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, one of the things that happened to God's people over and over and over and over again was that they would step back from trusting God and letting Him be their sole defender and their sole caregiver, and they would turn and trust other gods. Because in that day and time, everybody else they knew worshipped other gods. And, And if you were going to get ahead in business, if you were going to get ahead as a farmer, you had to make sure everybody was happy. And so they would lose their faith in God. They were eroded. They said, okay, we're going to trust God. And and just to hedge our bets, we're we're going to do sacrifices to these other gods as well. And every time they did that, what did God do? What did he allow to come into their life? Pressure. Pressure. Every time that The God's people trusted in something else other than him. He allowed pressure to come into their life. He allowed it to get to be so difficult, so hard, so terrifying, so much weight on their soul that they turned out in desperation and said, oh God, save me. Now that's not the way he wants you and I to live, but when he turns a defeated believer into a A demon-defying warrior, the first step typically begins with that defeated believer discovering how defeated they are. And God allows that pressure to roll into their life, not because he's mean, not because he just wants to make life miserable for you, but because he wants to set you free from that enemy who wants to crush your soul, who hates you, who wants to murder you and lie to you. And so often what he does is he lets that pressure come in and he allows his people to come to a place of helpless desperation you may be there this morning and dear one i don't wish it on anyone i don't wish it on anyone to be at that place now there's times where god is simply testing our faith and growing our faith and just because you're having a hard time doesn't mean you're out of fellowship with god you may be in the very center of god's will So don't hear me say that. What I am saying is that there's some of us who go along our way, we come and tip God with a Sunday morning worship time, but then the rest of the week, we don't give a a wit, a thought to who God is. We don't talk to him. We don't rely on him. We don't seek him. We're playing church. And because your father loves you, he's not going to leave you like that. And he brings that pressure in And you discover that you cannot do life without him. And that is the mercy of God. Are you desperate? How does Jesus change defeated believers into warriors? He creates creates this intense dissatisfaction and desperation in their soul. Secondly, he awakens his people to himself. He awakens his people to himself. Typically, we're in a slumber spiritually. And what the whole essence of revival is, is when we wake up to who God is. In verse 17, after this experience of the Jewish exorcists who got, lost their clothes, in verse 17 it says, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. That's a lot of people. I tell you what, if I got stripped naked by a demon, I wouldn't want the whole town to know about it. And it says, all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they're talking about it. And listen to this, and fear fell upon them. Fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Later on in the next couple of verses, it describes how believers came, they were confessing. These are believers, Christians, they came confessing and stopping practices that they had continued even after they had trusted Jesus. One group of them took all their magic books that had been so important to them when they were lost, they had become Christians, but they still had the books in the house. And they took all of their books of magic, and they gathered them together, and they burned them. It says they were worth 50,000 pieces of silver. They didn't sell them and give the money to missions. They burned them. This was their... Their toehold, this was their, their safety net if Jesus didn't work out. These, are, these are, they were like the people in Judges. I got God and these things and these things and these things. No, no more. They brought all of the books, 50,000 pieces of silver worth. In today's dollars, it would have been about $115,000, $115,000. And they burned it. Believers got serious about their relationship to Jesus. That word extolled is so significant. It says, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It means to make great, to exalt, to praise his name. A lot of times we walk around with a little Jesus in our head. He wasn't little to these people. And his name was great. His name was great. And so they had a heart. They had been transformed from just being believers, defeated believers, uh, sitting on the fence believers, they have been transformed into worshipers. Listen, when someone becomes a real worshiper, it's more than just coming on Sunday singing a song. When someone is a real worshiper of Jesus Christ, their heart is yielded to him in a love relationship, a love relationship. And before you can be a warrior for Jesus, you have got to be a worshiper for Jesus. You've got to know him. You've got to love him. You've got to enjoy him. He is everything for you. Everything. That was the mistake that these crazy exorcists, the sons of Siva made. They thought, I don't need a relationship with Jesus. I'll just use his name. I'll just use what God, you know, I'll use the church. I'll use whatever I can to get ahead in life. They didn't have a relationship with him, and that was their terrible mistake. So Jesus awakens us first to himself, and we see this all through Scripture. Exodus 17, the very first battle that the Israelites fought with Amalek coming out of Egypt. You remember what happened? Moses is on a hill. Every time he raises his hands, Israel prevails in the battle. He can't keep his hands up. He can't keep the symbol of his relationship with God, of his dependence with God. He can't hold his hands up long enough. So two men come along. They say, sit here, Moses. And one held up his arm. The other one held up his other arm. They held his arms up. And all the while, those people are fighting. And all the while, they're winning. They realize that the the whole reason they're getting ahead, the whole reason they're winning is because of Moses' intercession and relationship with God. Before you're a warrior, you've got to be a worshiper. In 1 Samuel 16, the, the king Saul, who had been disobedient to God, who had rejected an intense, intimate relationship with God, God allowed evil spirits to come and torment him. God was bringing the pressure. And the Bible says that when Saul found out about David, David would come with his harp. He was a musician. He was an artist. He would sing. And when David sang, now remember, this is a man after God's own heart. He loved the Father. He loved the Lord. He loved God. If he could do one thing in his life, it would be to be in the temple of God, worshiping God. And when David played that harp, that lyre, when he played that music, and he began to sing, the enemy left. And I could show you dozens of examples of that in Scripture. Now, why is that? It's not because you have some great power. It's because when you worship the Lord, he comes near. And demons hate the presence of God. The devil hates the presence of God. And so Jesus awakens us first to himself when he transforms a defeated believer into a warrior he starts with awakening that believer to who he is and to their relationship with him. What is the greatest commandment? The love of the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, everything you are. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, what would we be doing in the garden? We'd be walking with God. We were created for relationship with him. That's what they were doing before they sinned. And that's what God wants to do now in your life. He wants you to have a relationship with Him, to know Him, to have fellowship with Him, to have communion with Him all day long. So it's Jesus they can't stand. And when you worship, they leave. And that's when you become dangerous. So how does Jesus change defeated believers into warriors? One, He creates His intense dissatisfaction, um, desperation in the soul, We begin to cry out to him and turn to him. He awakens his people to himself. He wants us to have a relationship with him. More than your success, more than victory, more than answers to prayer, he wants you just to know him and love him. And he awakens you to himself. And then the third thing, last thing, he deploys his people into a spiritual battle. He sends us into a spiritual battle. One of the struggles I had with this particular message is there's so much scripture that speaks to this. I'm sending you like lambs among wolves, he said. It's a fight. They're going to want to kill you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to say terrible things about you. All the world's going to hate you. But be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. In verse 10, describing someone who understood this, describing Paul, It says, this continued. What continued? He was preaching and teaching in the hall of Tyrannus about the kingdom of God. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, I don't know if you caught that the first time I read it, but an extraordinary miracle seems like a redundant expression. To me, any miracle right now would be extraordinary. And the word literally means uncommon. He was doing uncommon miracles. None of these little common miracles. He was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, it says. Now, remember what they said to the the sons of Siva. Jesus I know, and Paul, well, we're acquainted with him, but who are you? Now, why did they know who Paul was? Why were they acquainted with him? Why was he on their radar screen? I believe it's because he was doing two things. Now, I'm not giving you a formula. Because when you walk with Jesus, there's no formula. You just walk with Jesus. So, um, But I will say this about Paul. He was a spirit-filled. He was a spirit-dominated. He was a spirit-directed man. And it's the same Holy Spirit that lives in you, Christian. He doesn't give the whole spirit to Paul and then a junior version to you. There's no little league Christian with little bitty Holy Spirits in him. It's the same Holy Spirit. And he was a Spirit-filled, Spirit-dominated, Spirit-directed man. the life of Jesus lived in Paul. And when Paul spoke, the demons reacted as if Jesus was speaking. And in a very real sense, he was. So the two things that Paul did as a deployed Christian, not a defeated Christian, but as a deployed Christian, he did two things. Number one, he talked about Jesus. It says this continued for two years. He talked about Jesus, talked about Jesus, talked about Jesus, talked about Jesus. Now, why did he talk so much about Jesus? Well, the Bible tells us that the gospel The very words themselves, that message is power. He wrote later to the people in Corinth, he said, I am not, um, he said to the people in Rome, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. This message, I'm not the power of God for salvation, he said, but the gospel is the power of God. And then he wrote to the people of Corinth, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What is the power of God? It is the power of God, the message of the cross. The message of the cross is power. And for two years, he gave out power every afternoon at the Hall of Tyrannus. Power, 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 power. He just broadcast the gospel, and everyone in Asia heard the word of the Lord. How often do you talk about Jesus? How often do you talk about Jesus? Last week, we talked about planting seeds. In casual conversation, do you know how many opportunities you have just to talk about Jesus? What Jesus is doing for you, things he's showing you, things he's, he's done in your heart, things he's doing in your family, things he's doing in your life. You say, well, pastor, I can't think of a whole lot. Well, let's go back to point number two. Is Jesus awakening you to himself? See, that's why before you can be a warrior, you've got to be a worshiper. You've got to know who he is. You've got to experience him. You've got to spend time with him. You've got to have communion with him. But then once you do, you can't help it. You're going to talk about Jesus. Are you talking about Jesus? Let it be not something you go do. This is not a program. These are not steps to follow. It's evidence of whether or not worship is happening. In your heart. He talked about Jesus. Second thing he did is a deployed Christian, not a defeated Christian. The second thing he did is, is he did what Jesus prompted him to do. He just did what Jesus told him to do. In verse 11 it says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. And we know from other passages of Scripture that, that Paul didn't do anything without God's direction in his life. He tried to cross Asia Minor. He wanted to go this way. Holy Spirit said, don't go there. He wanted to go this way. Holy Spirit said, don't go there. So you can't imagine him doing things like healing people and casting out demons unless God told him. So God did it. God was doing the extraordinary miracles. Not Paul. God was doing it. How? By the hands of Paul through the instrumentality of a human being. So what was Paul doing? He's just doing what Jesus told him to do. Go see that person. Go pray for that person. Go talk to that person. Lay hands on that person. He just did what Jesus prompted him to do. I can't help but think about John chapter 2 where, um, where Jesus is at the wedding at Cana. You remember that? And uh, they ran out of wine. Socially, that was just a terrible thing for the bridegroom to run out of wine at this great feast. And so Jesus' mother comes to Jesus, and then she turns to the, the servants, and she says, do whatever he tells you to do. You know, he and his mom had this discussion. That's a whole other sermon. But, but then she just turns, all right, son, fine, whatever you say. And to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do whatever he tells you to do. So Jesus says to the servants, I want you to go to these water pots, these pots, I want you to fill them with water. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was one of those servants, I would, I would be thinking if not saying to Jesus, Jesus, you, you don't understand, we don't have a water problem. We don't have a deficiency of water. We don't need more water. But they did it, the Bible says. And then I don't know how they figured out which one of them was going to dip out that dirty water. I mean, that's all they knew about. Dip out that dirty water and take it to the master of the feast and say, here, try this. Ah, uh, I think they picked the guy that just was last hired. <laughs> and he goes up there, the master of the feast, he takes that ladle and he, he sips what they thought was dirty water. and turns out to be the finest beverage that they could have gotten for the wedding he doesn't know where it came from he turns to the bridegroom and says man you have outdone yourself usually people save the good stuff for the beginning or for the uh, for the beginning and and the crummy stuff for the end you have brought the good stuff out first but then the bible says something really interesting in john 2 just listen it says he complimented the bridegroom and then it says though the servants who had drawn the water knew the servants who had drawn the water they knew They knew what happened. Bridegroom didn't know what happened. Master of the the feast, he didn't know what happened. But the servants knew. The servants who had heard what Jesus wanted to do and simply did what Jesus said to do. It's really interesting. In John 15, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants because they don't know what the master's doing. Now I call you friends. The people, the inside the inside of all the wonderful things you see happening through spirit-filled Christians. The inside story is, is, is something that only the servants know about who have become the friends of Jesus because they simply did what Jesus said to do next. What is Jesus leading you to do next? What is, what is he prompting you to do with your life? The delta will be transformed when the people of God talk about Jesus because they become worshipers. And we become warriors. We become warriors when we simply do the next thing Jesus says to do.